everybody. Welcome to True Crime University. This is your Professor Debbie. I'm so happy to, I can't say see everybody, but you know what I mean. I'm so happy that yous are here, all my friends from around the world. It gives me such warm fuzzies when I look at my stats, and every time I look, I have new people in the United States and all over the world, and it's the best feeling. It's, it's just so cool that I can't believe people actually listen to me. I used to joke about my imaginary friends, remember that? But uh, now I know that yous are real. So it is really, really cool. I love to share my knowledge with you. And I was editing last episode, remember the first on Nico Jenkins. And to my um, dismay, I guess is the word, I heard Nathan woofing in the background. And unfortunately, I couldn't get it out. I'm not that good of an editor. And he's barking like while I'm talking. So without going back and redoing it, there's really no way to get it out that I know of. And it's funny because if I was listening to another podcast and their dog was barking, I would think, oh, how cute. But since it's mine, it's like, oh, God, how embarrassing. Arians ready to talk about Nico Jenkins and his family? Um, <laughs> I was just going to jump into what happens right after he's arrested, but I rethought it. And instead, I'm going to give you the lecture on... Remember, I, ha I said I was going to talk about sociology. And I'm going to try not to sniffle so much. That's, that's easier, easier said than done. But we are going to talk about biocriminology. And what that is, is the study of biological and genetic factors and their relation to criminal behavior. Now... If you've ever taken a sociology class in college like I have, you will probably learn about the Juke and Kallikak families, and I'll tell you who they are. In 1877, a sociologist named Richard Dugdale published a study of a family that he called the Jukes. This was not their real name. He just made it up. He referred to the mom several generations back as <laughs> Margaret, the mother of criminals, and he studied her descendants. And this was in New York. And he figured out that w within 75 years, they had cost the state of New York over $1.25 million. I don't know what that would be today, because this was like around 1900. It would be, needless to say, it would be a lot of money, like what we would term a shitload. So, Henry Goddard, who was a member of the American Eugenics Society, published a book in 1912 that traced the descendants of a guy named Martin Kallikak. Again, not his real name. But Martin was a Revolutionary War soldier who seduced a feeble-minded girl, and they had a feeble-minded son, who then went on to have 480 descendants. Feeble-minded is the old-fashioned term for, um, I guess they used to call it retarded, um, or slow today, they would call it like mentally challenged or handicapped, so that's what that means. Of these 480 descendants, 33 of them were sexually immoral, and by that I would assume that they mean like a sex offender. 24 were drunkards, 3 were epileptics, that's a, a disease, but I know that it has genetic roots, and 143 were feeble-minded. Now, the study seemed to provide evidence for the link between genes, what they called feeble-mindedness, and immoral behavior, which today we would call criminal behavior. And they were pointing out that these people, meaning it's just poor people, people that 
like the Jenkinses that, that uh, have a lot of criminal behavior in the family, they tend to breed a lot more so than like law-abiding people. And a lot of people used this study as support for eugenics programs. If you don't know what eugenics is, it's a, I guess like a pseudoscience, like a belief more, I guess, and it's um, Hitler and the Nazis were eugenicists. You remember how they wanted a master race, they wanted to exterminate people of certain races and ethnic origins in order to have like this pure race, which I mean of course is, is a ridiculous idea, but that's what eugenics is. Like the take the word ge genetics, which you know what that is, the study of genes. The Greek prefix eu, which means good, and you have basically good genes. And it's like the concept that you can design perfect people or good people. And anyway, that is the concept behind eugenics. And Margaret Sanger wrote, quote, The offspring of one feeble-minded man named Juke has cost the public in one way or another $1,800,000 in 75 years. Do we want more such families? End quote. If the name Margaret Sanger sounds familiar, well, it should. She was known as an activist, writer, nurse, birth control, and sex education advocate. She actually popularized the term birth control. She opened the first birth control clinic in the United States called the American Birth Control League. It later became known as Planned Parenthood in 1921. She was lauded for her reproductive rights, but criticized for her support of eugenics. And all that stuff she did was wonderful. I'm not taking away from that. I mean, we need birth control and education and all that. But the eugenics part, eh, that's not so cool. Um, now, the Dukes were a New York Hill family studied in the late 19th and 20th century and they were part of a series of other family studies because around this time there were a number of them done like the Calicacs, the Zeros, and the Nams and these are all pseudonyms and they're all quoted in support of eugenics like look what happens when you let people breed they become you know criminals and they run around and they do stuff like immoral stuff and they're drunkards and they cost money and this and that. And Dugdale's study, instead of eugenics, his it actually emphasizes the effect of the environment as a determining factor in criminality, disease, and poverty. And these three things go hand in hand. And I want you to keep this in mind when we talk about the Jenkins family because they go right hand-in-hand hand with these other families. Now, Dugdale was an executive on the committee of the Prison Association of New York. He was a sociologist, and he went around visiting upstate jails, jails in upstate New York. And in just one jail, he found six members of the Duke family. And of out of 29 male immediate blood relations, 17 of them had been arrested and 13 of them convicted of crimes. And he made detailed genetic charts like family trees of, you know, all the, the parents and brothers and sisters and their descendants and so on and so forth. And what they, their traits were as far as criminality and I don't know if you remember me mentioning it, but uh, somebody did that with Nico Jenkins' family. In 1877, uh, the study called The Jukes, a study in crime, pauperism, disease, and heredity, said that, quote, the environment tends to produce habits which may become hereditary, unquote. And the author urged public welfare changes and changes in the environment to prevent poverty, disease, and criminality. So this kind of belief and such 
studies like this were like in favor, like the eugenics crap movement and stuff like that was popular in like the early 20th century. But in the 1960s, it started to become out of favor because people started to take a closer look at this research and they found a lot of problems with the studies. Uh, a guy named Paul Lombardo from the Center for Biomedical Ethics at the University of Virginia said, quote, even today, the Jukes seem to be getting a third life on the internet as we see some religious and political groups invoking them as examples of inherited immorality, end quote. Now, <laughs> remember I told you somebody made this up. The Jenkins family, they started out with Levi Levering, who was Nico's great-great-grandfather. He had 38 descendants, okay? 38, keep that number in mind. Convicted of 633 crimes since 1979. 38 people committed 633 crimes. That's like, that's mind-boggling. I'm just like trying to wrap my head around that. And that's like, oh, wow. And of these crimes, 160 were driving without a license. 112 were involving drugs and alcohol. 86 were theft. 54 were failure to appear, you know, like failure to appear in court. 33 were assaults. 33 were property damage. 23 were obstruction, obstruction of justice. 11 were robberies or burglaries. 14 were weapons offenses. And 105 were other. So, I guess Nico and his murder spree would be one of the other. So, um, just a little more into this. Uh, did you ever hear of Cesar Lombroso? He was an Italian criminologist and a physician from 1835 to 1909. He is said to have coined the term criminology. So, we have him to thank for today's what we know as the study of criminology. He believed that criminality was inherited and that criminals could be identified by physical defects, meaning like things that were wrong with their actual body. He was the first person to make crime and criminals a specific area of study. He said that uh, one of these people like a, a criminal, would display multiple physiological anomalies representing a reversion to primitive or subhuman type of person characterized by features reminiscent of apes. Like, he called them biological throwbacks. And you know how we're said, said to be descended from apes, but it's not really a direct descendant. It's like more of a uh, branched off kind of a descent. But listen to his description of somebody who he thought was a criminal. And he got this idea from autopsies of criminals and just like looking at the heads and bodies of actual live criminals. And he said that the born criminals have a sloping forehead, strangely shaped ears, uh, facial asymmetry, like, you know, crooked face, crooked nose, or something like that. Long arms, cranial asymmetry, that's your, your skulls, like, weirdly shaped or bumpy or whatever. Protruding jaw, less sensitivity to pain and touch, sharper sight, lack of moral sense, absence of remorse, vanity, impulsiveness, vindictiveness, cruelty, and, are you ready for this one? This one's perfect. I, I swear to not, I'm not making this up. Excessive use of tattooing. This was the 19th century, he said. <laughs> I mean, that, that's... It's like, who do we know? Who have we have been talking about? That is the picture-perfect example of that. Okay? But, um, anyway, what, are the, what does that sound like I just described? An ape, right? With the sloping forehead, long arms, facial 
asymmetry protruding jaw he's describing an ape and most of this that I just said is ridiculous um I think nowadays Nika Jenkins not uh cowling many many people have tattoos nowadays I have seven tattoos and according to his theory I might be a criminal but I'm not and I know many people who are heavily tattooed and they're not either but some of these um lack of moral sense mm, check absence of remorse check vanity impulsiveness vindictiveness cruelty what does that sound like to you like that we would call today a psychopath right and those are our are all traits that are associated with what we now call antisocial personality disorder. And ask yourself, from what we know of the Jenkins family, do they have those traits? I would say yeah. I, I would say absolutely. So, I mean, I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that some dude, even though he might have been off with the uh, crooked face and the long arms and stuff like that, it was the 1800s, and he was had some uh, ideas that are still applicable today in modern criminology. So his theory really only survived in his homeland of Italy. And then pretty much after World War II, everybody's like, you know, that's bullshit. That's ridiculous. And now, I mean, it's just laughable, literally. One of the most famous and noteworthy names in criminology is Edwin Sutherland. He was one of the most influential criminologists of the 20th century. He was born in Nebraska in 1947. It's not funny because Nico Jenkins is in Nebraska. Of his theories and of like all criminological theories... One of the most popular is his theory of differential association. And I'll just give you some basic highlights of this. He said that criminal behavior is learned from intimate personal groups like a family. Meaning the, uh, the older guys, like the, the ones that studied the Jukes and Calicax, they thought that it was more like genetic inherited well Sutherland said okay crime runs in families but that's because it's learned because you learn your behavior from your parents which is true I mean think about it and he said learning includes techniques for committing crimes motives rationalizations and attitudes keep that in mind when we talk about all of the Jenkinses, and we all know that each of Nico's uh, murders in his spree, that at least one other relative was involved. So keep that in mind. They learn criminal behavior the same way they learn any other behavior in a family. How to, you learn how to talk, how to walk, how to, you know, poop on the pot, or read anything. You learn how to steal, how to uh, steal a car, how, you know, any number of criminal behaviors. And the Jenkinses apparently learned these very well. And these behaviors are learned as a byproduct of interacting with others. And these are the four factors. If you could see me, I would write this on a blackboard because these are really important. Frequency, duration, priority, and intensity. I use this in my dissertation to prove that, just to remind you, I know I, I talked about it a couple times. If you don't know anybody that's ever written a dissertation, when you do, it's like you spend so much time on it, it's like you're living and breathing this thing. It, I, mine took me a year to do too. Between researching and writing it, a whole year, it, it kind of becomes part of you, like a, a child. Like, you, you've given birth to the fucking thing. 
and you it, it's like everything reminds you of it everything you want to like you see that like this it's like oh that was in my dissertation yeah and I did several real life cases and if, you know I'm going to cover some of them and you know I've got husband and wives that killed I've got a pair of lesbian lovers that killed I have a group of I think a couple groups of people who killed it's like randomly formed groups and my theory says that differential association can be applied to how this group whether it's a duo a trio or four how their criminal behavior was transmitted uh, frequency if it's a married couple or if it's a family that just means that you're going to be in contact with these people often and the learning is going to be the more often that you have contact with the person who's teaching you something the more that you're going to learn it which is just common sense duration the longer you're with somebody the more their teachings are going to stick with you whether they're crime or values good or bad either one doesn't matter i mean they're it's the same principle priority that's how important the person teaching the things is to you if it's a spouse they're going to be a high priority because you want to please your spouse you also want to please your parents most kids like when they're brought up it's like they they want to make their parents proud and that goes with crime it's it's learned behavior like any other kind of behavior and the last one is intensity and that's the transmitting of values and ideas and behaviors will be more absorbed if the relationship between the people is more intense and i'm thinking of a couple that's in my dissertation right off the top of my head that and i don't mean to be teasing because that's not nice but i guess i kind of am it's like you know stay tuned <laughs> so when we're talking about the jenkinses we need breaks because i don't know about you but they kind of make me nuts well i had to research them and i had to every time i would go on the internet to look something up i would have to look at nico's face and i'm really tired of his face have you seen his face yet you have you got to see his face because it's you got to see it to believe it. but anyway so we know that he had his crime spree and he was finally arrested on august 30th and he was actually arrested on a charge of terroristic threats and not on the murders and try as i might i know this is strange i don't know what the terroristic threats charge referred to or when this supposedly took place but they found him at the home of a relative it might have been that cousin brian it didn't specify but believe it or not he had two guns on him and they took him to the douglas county jail so i have a clip a news clip of a press conference that the police chief gave when they caught him he's like reassuring the public you know we got him everything's okay because he had the city of omaha in quite a uh, an uproar for a while everybody was afraid because there's just maniac going around killing people so i'm going to play that for you mr nico jenkins was an indiscriminate killer who wreaked havoc on the Omaha area since being released from prison on July 30th. He crossed racial, gender, and city boundaries to commit his murders. As the Omaha Police Department was investigating the double homicide of Ruiz and Pena and the Bradford murder, similarities started to emerge between the two crime scenes by way of ballistic evidence. After the fourth murder of Andrea Kruger, Crime Stopper tips started to come in and the Omaha Police Department and the Douglas County Sheriff's Department started working together as we felt the same suspect, Nico Jenkins, was responsible for all four murders. Since being released from prison on July 30th, 
Nico Jenkins maneuvered through his freedom by using fear, intimidation, and violence to get what he wanted. It is rare to have a killer cross racial and gender lines, so law enforcement knew we had an exceptionally violent offender. Because of his violence and for fear he would kill again, before all the evidence commenced to make an arrest, law enforcement worked together to track down Nico Jenkins on his warrant for terroristic threats. This was a joint surveillance and locating effort on behalf of the Omaha Police Department, Douglas County Sheriff's Department, FBI, and U.S. Marshal Service. So, he's sitting in jail, and on September 3rd, he makes a call to the homicide detectives, and he said, I want to talk to you. So, they go there, and he talked for seven hours. He just babbled. You can imagine, just sat there, blah, 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 blah. And... I thought that there would be a video of it somewhere, but there's not. There are a couple clips available, and the audio on them, I wanted to, to play it for you, but the audio is too bad. It's too faint, and if I would give you a recording of a recording, it would just be too hard to hear. So I'll just kind of give you a summary. He started out by saying, it's going to be a long night. I'm going to give you everything you need. But he, he wasn't, uh, you know, Nico. Nothing comes easy. Nothing comes for free. He's playing them. He asked them if they had any information on the weapon used. He's like, did they, you know, test the bullets or whatever? And they're like, we're not telling you that shit, you know? So this is pretty funny. He said if they give him, him a wire that he would go undercover into the hood to help them figure out who killed Andrea Kruger. That's the victim number four. And he said he would be good at this because he has street cred. Um, street cred is probably the only kind of credibility that he does have. He asked for a meal from McDonald's and they brought it to him. So. Now he throws Erica and Christine, his cousin, under the bus, he said. They did it. So then he eventually admitted, you know how they do, well, I was there, but, you know, I didn't really do it. You know, like he was there, but Erica and Christine did it. So then he eventually admitted that he did it, but... Apophis made him. Remember Apophis, the snake god, the god of chaos thing? So, still typical Nico, can't re take responsibility for anything. Now, the detective said that he was occasionally emotional, but that he was always coherent and calculated, even clever. Now, this will be important later. And at one point, he said, quote, I am documented psychiatrically disordered, unquote. Remember I told you about his wife, Shalonda. She has tattoos on her face like him. She is also a felon, believe it or not. She, at, at one time, in, unless she's back in jail again, who knows, was serving a year for possession of brass knuckles, which are considered a deadly weapon. At one time, she was thought to be involved in his murder spree, but then... Uh, it was found that, you know, she wasn't. She was cleared. So I do have a little clip of an interview with Shalonda. This is his now ex-wife. At the time of this interview, they were still married. So here she is. But his wife says he never got the help he needed. And his psych evaluation shows he needed mental help as early as the second grade. That's when he says a voice told him to bring his mom's gun to school. A voice Nico now says is an Egyptian demon forcing him to kill. KETV News Watch 7's Hannah Pickett sits down with Jenkins' wife for this rare interview. He's not pretending to be crazy. He's real life crazy. Shalonda Jenkins says in the five years she's known her husband, Nico, he's suffered a plethora of mental illness and claims to be controlled by an Egyptian god, Apophis. Nico specifically told me that Apophis gives him orders. Nico told her Apophis saved him from attempting suicide in solitary confinement a few years ago. It was this voice that came and was just like, 
if you do what I tell you to do, if you follow my demands, then I'll make sure you're safe and make sure you're okay. Nico claims to have heard these voices since he was a child, and it continued through his teenage and adult years. And prior to his July release from prison, Nico asked for mental help. His wife did too. I told them not to let him out. I said he's not ready to come out in society. But Nico's wife says the system failed him by not giving him that treatment. Weeks later, prosecutors say he went on a killing spree, murdering four people. I feel sorry for the, the victims. I feel sorry for all four of them. I feel sorry for people who got hurt by Nico. Now Nico awaits another mental evaluation to determine if he's even competent to stay on trial. Right now, he's not. Shalonda just hopes someone will finally help him. Whatever happens in the justice system happens, but at the same time, I just want my husband to get help, whether if he has to go to death row or whether he has to do life without parole or whatever. I just want my husband to get the mental help that he needs. Okay. Now, I told you those two got divorced in 2017, and Nico is supposedly engaged but he's actually keeping the details of it quiet but we do know that her name is dawn and the way he met her she's from lubbock texas she is a volunteer in a program for inmates rights and she is also in a couple other um i guess you would call them prison pen pal groups but um the woman who runs this agency for the prison inmates, Tina Church, she says that Dawn is not a death row groupie. Now, she's 46, Nico's 33, and I have a picture of her on my um, Instagram and Facebook. He tattooed, as he does, her name on his face, and she wasn't real pleased with that. She said, I was very pissed off that he did that. He doesn't need to self-mutilate like that. Now, her quote about her fiancé is, quote, he's an enigma. He has feelings. He's very sensitive. He's very intelligent, and yes, he's very manipulating. He's not what the media has made him out to be, end quote. Now, probably like me, you're mystified by why somebody would want to marry somebody on death row, which is a legitimate question. And there have actually been books written on this topic. It's a, it's a whole phenomenon. And I plan to do an episode just on this topic, prison groupies, at some point. And I'm, I'm sure you've noticed that it's usually women who are the, the groupies. Whenever you have a female in jail or prison, you know, a female serial killer or, or murderer or whatnot, they do attract their share of attention of, you know, from male admirers, but by far it is more prevalent among women to be enamored of these men. And there are psychological reasons behind that. Now, while he's in jail waiting for his trial, Nico does not just sit there quietly, of course. He does a lot of things to keep himself and other people busy. He is like a one-man circus. He, as I mentioned, he sees many therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists in the jail. And at first, he was decided not to be competent for trial. In order to be competent to stand trial. Most states, anyway, they require you to have a psychiatric evaluation. That's where a mental health professional asks you questions to see if you're basically like of sound mind in an, enough that you can understand what's going on, like understand the charges against you, and that you are able to participate in your own defense. Those are like the main high points that you have to hit. Apparently, at some point, for whatever reason, Nico was found not to be. So I know in Pennsylvania, what we, we do is if somebody's found not competent to stand trial, I haven't seen it often, but it, it has happened. Usually they are sent to a state hospital, you know, like a mental hospital, and they're treated until they are assumed to be in a better state of mind. 
then they're reevaluated. And they keep doing that until they think that the person is ready to go to trial. Now, in his case, what he did um, when he was in jail, as he filed a, this is kind of ironic, he filed a lawsuit against the state of Nebraska for wrongfully letting him out of prison early. He said that because they let him out, it's their fault that he went and killed people. Again, total lack of responsibility. He lost that suit, by the way. In his lawsuit, he alleged that these state officials failed to protect public safety by not seeking the civil commitment of a dangerous person of mental illness. That would be him. And the families of Andrea Kruger and Curtis Bradford also filed similar lawsuits saying that, saying basically the same thing, like he should not have been out of prison. As far as the state of their lawsuits, I don't know. He also has a habit of mutilating himself, tattooing himself. Uh, remember the Albert Fish episode, how he liked to stick needles in himself, and when he was in jail, he somehow got a hold of something sharp, and he would stab himself, like, for pleasure or entertainment? That's what this asshole does. He will get, on one occasion, he took the towel, a piece of towel, off of the wall, sharpened it, and used it to as like a knife to cut himself. And people are like, where is he getting this shit? How is he getting razor blades or, or sharp? Because he's not allowed to have any, understandably, anything sharp. And somebody, I think I saw it on a news clip or read it somewhere, somebody theorized that, well, maybe other inmates are sneaking it to him in his food. Like, you know, stick a razor blade in his mashed potatoes or something. And I'm thinking, well, couldn't they just, somebody just put some gloves on, poke their finger in the mashed potatoes, see if there's any contraband in there before they give him the food, unless there's the other thought, well, maybe somebody wants him to do away with himself because he's obnoxious. And that's a thought. This is what he wrote in his lawsuit. He said, quote, I am seeking monetary damages in $24.5 million as the four large facial wounds I suffered have deeply scarred my face for life, yet the emotional distress, pain, and suffering is also lifelong, end quote. Um, yeah, but he did it to himself, and you can see the one picture I have of him, the, um, in profile, he's got the, on the, okay, it's the right side of his face, he's, he's big, like, slashes. He did that. I don't know if he thinks it makes him look attractive or it, it doesn't, but I mean, who knows? So that Dr. Eugene Oliveto, remember I mentioned him before, he said that Nico is one of the most dangerous people he's ever evaluated. And he, I don't know how he, he got his hands on this, but he did. He got hold of part of a razor blade, and he mailed it to the Senator Ernie, Ernie Chambers. And so what they did in Nebraska is they made a legislative committee to discuss, um, you know, Nico and his ongoing problem. And they discussed how is he getting things to hurt himself with? How is this happening? He's supposed to be in the hole. And in 2014, Senator Brad Ashford got a couple bills to pass the state legislature. And last I heard, they were waiting for the governor's approval. So I don't know if these are actually like effective yet, but they are, and, and they're, they're totally reasonable, more supervision for former inmates and the creation of programs that help inmates or ex-inmates transfer back into society. And like I said, totally, totally reasonable. So remember at the, like real early on, I mentioned that he had a sister named Sophia who is not a criminal. And apparently she visited him one time and she was unpleasantly surprised at what she was told. 
And here is Sophia on the news. And state senators want to know why officials can't put a stop to it. One inmate involved in nearly a dozen incidents behind bars. Good evening. I'm Jennifer Griswold. And I'm Craig DeGrelli. Convicted killer Nico Jenkins injured himself yet again. Now prominent state senators are asking, how does this keep happening and where's the supervision? Senior reporter Jake Wazikowski is live with the latest tonight. Jake. Jenkins, a safe key from Douglas County, reportedly swallowed a set of keys over the weekend while in prison. His sister is extremely upset. Some state leaders say it's a systematic failure that should already be fixed, and one is calling for the prison director's job. That should have never happened. And it was very disturbing to hear. You know? Sophia Jenkins, Nico's older sister, says when she tried to visit her brother in Lincoln on Sunday, she couldn't and couldn't believe why. She tells KMTV exclusively that her brother was strapped to a bed by correction staff when he grabbed a set of seven handcuff keys and swallowed them. It really did. It was disturbing. It was it was heartbreaking. And I, it was unbelievable. Like, I, I couldn't even imagine it. Like, really? You know, he swallowed some keys and then let alone seven keys. NDCS says staff tended to him and he didn't need to go to the hospital. But on at least 10 occasions in the last year, Jenkins has harmed himself by cutting his face and tongue and mutilating his genitals with razors and other objects. One item he used to cut his penis was a guard's bag. Sophia wants to know why someone like Jenkins isn't at a mental hospital when they clearly need it. And it's previously been ordered. For his illness, he needs to be in a hospital and he needs to be treated for his mental illness and not in 23-hour confinement. He swallowed keys. What is he, Moby Dick? Um, did you hear where the, uh, the newscaster said that he cut his penis? You're not right. He cut his dick with a guard's badge. Now, there's only really one way to get a guard's badge. You're either, like, really adept at magic tricks because, I mean, think of a badge. It's like a pin, right? It is extremely difficult to get off of somebody without them realizing it unless they give it to you. And I'm not making any accusations or anything. I mean, I don't know what goes on there. I'm just saying is all. So you're probably wondering, of course, is what would make somebody mutilate their own dick? Well, like everything else, supposedly, Apophis told him to. And he said that he wanted to... Remember, Apophis looks like a snake. So he thought that his um, member should resemble a snake's head. So he carved it. And this required 27 stitches. He has hurt himself at least 10 times, like seriously hurt himself at least 10 times since 2015. He's tried to hang himself twice. Um, one psychologist said that he's doing this to get what he wants or get attention. Remember, I don't know if you heard the Joel Guy episode, that's a weirdo that carved up his parents. He wrote the letter to jail officials saying that he was having a fantasy about gouging out his cellmate's eyeballs, and everybody concluded that he was just saying that to get his own cell. Well, it's the same thing going on here, I think, anyway. I think that he just wants attention, and he just wants to get whatever it is that he wants. He's extremely manipulative. You even heard his fiance admit to that. So, some other stuff he's done, some uh, beauty enhancements he's made to himself. He cut the word Satan into his face. And as much as I've looked at that ugly mug, I can't find Satan anywhere. Maybe play play a little game like, you know, how hidden pictures, like look at the picture and try to find something hidden in it. Maybe you can look at his face and try to find the different things that are supposedly there. He also carved 666 on his forehead, but he was looking in a mirror when he did it, so supposedly it resembles more like a 999. But again, that I could not find that. He also cut his tongue in, I guess, like in half to, you know, more resemble a snake, and I'm, I'm sure Apophis told him to do that too. So at first, as far as his charges go, at first he pled guilty, then he pled nolo contendere, which means no contest, which means like legally you're saying like, um, I didn't do it, but you have 
enough evidence to prove that I did. So I'm just kind of like, okay, you got me. And I'm just like throwing up your hands. And in the end, he pleaded not guilty. So he's going to trial. And his trial keeps getting postponed because, for one thing, he keeps hurting himself. And this is probably, you can look at as a delaying tactic. And he keeps being found not competent to stand trial. And then he'll, they'll give him medicine and they'll go through the cycle. He'll take the medicine. He, they think he's better. Then he'll refuse to take the medicine. Then he'll have a suicide attempt and he'll be in the infirmary getting something stitched up and I mean, this just keeps going on and on. So he finally got to trial on April 16th of 2014. And I don't know if if this is something unique to, a, to Nebraska, but he asked for a bench trial, which is a trial by judge. And they had a panel of three judges and they found him guilty. And when he, he talked in court about, you know, what he had done, and he said, in my right state of mind, I would never hurt a woman like that, meaning Andrea Kruger, the, the last victim. He insisted on representing himself, which was just ridiculous. And the judge let him go so far. And after a while, he's like, all right, that's enough. You're going to have to accept the help of a public defender. When he was asked in court if he killed these victims, he said that he heard command voices that said, quote, kill them, destroy them, attack them, end quote. And then he said, I was alone, and weapons, and the demons, and Apophis, and Lucifer, they were attempting to kill me. So I killed them under orders of Apophis, end quote. See, it's... You know, it's always somebody else's fault. So he was found guilty. He was sentenced to death. He's on Nebraska's death row. And, um, oh, I forgot to add this tidbit. I was telling you about his beauty regimen. He drinks his pee as a nutritional supplement. And th this is right up here with Albert Fish. This is something that even he didn't do. And it's probably only because he never thought of it. But this is so disgusting. He consumes and snort his semen. Yeah, that his semen. And he said that he does that because it increases serotonin levels. Where he got this idea from, I don't know, probably Apophis told him. Um, serotonin, in case you don't know, is a neurotransmitter in your brain. It's like the happy chemical. It makes you feel good, um, I guess. Well, now this is interesting. I don't know which hearing or trial this occurred at, but I remember when I was in school, you know, back when we had inkwells at our desks for social studies class, we went to the courthouse downtown and we saw a little bit of court and it was really interesting. I mean, there's nothing interesting like a, a serial killer or anything, but it, I mean, it was just cool to see what happens and, and everything. So a um, high school class on one day, they got to go on a field trip to the courthouse and they locked out and they got to see Nico in action. And they had quite an experience. And here's a sound clip from the news again about these high school kids describing their day of watching Nico in court. Robin Brandy, one of the big highlights of Jackie Tevis's law studies class out at Millard West High School is a field trip down here to the Douglas County Courthouse to see how the courts really do work. Well, this one turned out to be a lot bigger and certainly more accidental than anyone bargained for. And he just straight up barked at us. Barked at in court by accused killer Nico Jenkins, known for his rants. Kelly Smith was there with her Millard West Law Studies class. I mean, it was a little more creepy that he was making eye contact while he did it. A routine field trip for Jackie Tevis's class to see how the courts really work. I never in a million years would have thought that we would have gotten in. The juniors and seniors in the right place at the right time for the courtroom spectacle. He's a really interesting guy, Nico is. Interesting in these legal surroundings where things are often routine. I thought there was going to be a lot more yelling and banging on tables, but it's pretty 
Other than Nico, it's not a lot of yelling. The most memorable thing for me was the fact that Nico was representing himself. Uh, I thought that was like a very bold decision on his part. Jack says even he heard Jenkins making mistakes, and he says the drama was remarkable. He was just like barking at us, just yelling, and he really wanted to put on a show. Like he really wanted to make sure that like it was all worth it and that he was remembered for the horrible things he's done. Jacob Barish was also impressed by Jenkins' self-representation. Just the way he was able to, I guess, proceed in the courtroom without a lawyer was, I guess, I'm not trying to like gloat about him, but it was just impressive. For some, the creepiness is more memorable. He turned his chair completely around and started kind of giving us a rant and pretty much made eye contact with every single one of us. See, the, I bet those kids had a day field trip that they'll, no, they'll never forget. That kid hit it on the nose when he said he just wants to be a spectacle and he wants everybody's attention. That is it exactly. And I don't know if you heard him. There was a clip of when they were bringing him out of the courtroom, he saw the cameras and he started making some kind of a weird, I don't know if that was Spanish or his own language or what that was, but and I've seen clips of other family members of his in court, and they all act that way. His one sister, Erica, threw a temper tantrum in court and had to be restrained and let out. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But that's the kind of stuff he does. Now, Michael Ryan Kruger, that's Andrea's husband, he said that he has stopped coming to the hearings he said, quote, I knew right then I'm not coming back to watch this this stuff. I just don't want to be a witness to any of that craziness, any kind of circus, end quote. So he's just like, I'm tired of this. You know, I, you know, I come here to see what's going on, to get justice for my wife. And we have this dude acting like an idiot and making a, a show of himself. And as far as family members of victims that went to court. Um, it was Andrea's family and Curtis Bradford, Bradford's mother. And now um, Curtis's mom, Valida Glasgow, said, quote, I think we bonded as mothers. It's a hell of a thing that we had to meet like this, unquote. And she means, of course, Andrea's mother. And we're, while we're on the topic of victims, I do have a clip, news clip, of some family members and what they had to say. For me and the way Andrew and I were, I needed to at least see him in person. It wasn't really anything more than I just think an experience that I had to. It wasn't easy. I didn't really want to, but something deep down just you know told me, and, I, and I'm happy I came. The families of Andrea Kruger and Curtis Bradford watched as deputies surrounded a handcuffed Nico Jenkins and listened as Judge Joseph Caniglia ordered he be held on no bond. There looks like there's no remorse. For Andrea Kruger's brother, this is the start of closure, but for her husband, it's still too fresh. Closure? No. Do I have questions? Absolutely. This is not about race. This is not about what part of town. This is just about um, evil on earth and having to take place in, in our community. The first guy you heard was Andrew's brother, and the second was her husband. And a little bit more of courtroom behavior, what he did. When he was sentenced, he was said to howl and speak in tongues. And basically just act like a maniac. And probably the worst thing he did was when the prosecutors described the victims' murders and the discovery of their bodies and what their bodies looked like, he laughed and smirked like, this is hilarious. And here is the judge. Remember, this is the three-judge panel. But this is one judge giving him um, the death sentence. This panel finds that the death penalty is appropriate, should be, and is hereby given for each of the four murders by the defendant. Four death sentences and another 12 convictions, each with 45 to 50 years in prison. That is what the three-panel judge ruled in the Nico Jenkins case. The defendant's commission of these four murders over a 10-day period 
is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. As I said, he is currently on death row at Tecumseh State Correctional Institution in Tecumseh, Nebraska, which is south of Omaha, near the Kansas border. Now, you know that all of his crimes were a family affair, right? So, in case you're wondering what happened to the other family members that participated, I have those results here for you. Now, Erica, that's Nico's sister. Remember, she was involved in all the murders. And the first one, the two guys, she helped to lure them to the uh, park where he shot them. And in the Curtis Bradford case, she shot him first, but she didn't kill him, so Nika shot him again. And in the third instance with Andrea Kruger, she was in the car behind Andrea that blocked her and helped to block her in. She is a real piece of work. She is... Uh, must read the same beauty magazine as Nico does. She doesn't have tattoos like that I can see on her face, but she does have a bunch of holes in her face, you know, metal piercings and metal things and whatnot. And I wish I had a clip of this so Dickens could hear it, but unfortunately, it's not on a a clip. It's just I just read about it, but she is at a bail hearing. And she yells to the judge, why you keep fucking with my bell? And the judge says, do you want a muzzle? And she yells back at the judge, do you want a fucking muzzle? So then she, you know that thing that's like a lectern or podium that they have in court? She knocks that thing over, almost hits one of the DAs with it. So all the bailiffs pile on top of her and handcuff her and wrestle her out of the room. Now, she was sentenced to 40 to 60 years for robbery, and at her sentencing, she said, quote, I feel like I'm being targeted, and I feel like you're trying to make an example of me because I'm the first to be sentenced out of all this, end quote. She said that there, she thought there was a conspiracy against her family, and they made him, meaning Nico, he's their Frankenstein, by they... I think she's referring to the criminal justice system. She represented herself, and she also made a spectacle of herself in court. She, in the trial of Curtis, she was found guilty of murder in 2015. She was sentenced to life for that, and because she doesn't know how to act in prison, she was transferred to a prison in Iowa. And what happened in prison, I'll tell you that in a few minutes. Remember Christine, the cousin? She was, and on the first, yeah, just the first incident, she cooperated with the prosecution. And they said that she was actually a key part of getting the convictions on the other people. So she was sentenced to 20 years on conspiracy to commit robbery and attempted robbery. Now, Christine made the following statement at her sentencing. Quote, My deepest sympathy goes out to the victim's families. I have made some very poor choices. God knows in my heart I never intended for anything like this to happen. Once again, I'm very remorseful. End quote. And her attorney said that she's always throughout this whole case been filled with remorse and I did get the sense that out of all of the members of the family that she was the most remorseful. Now her and Erica do not get along. So what do they do when they're in the county jail? I don't know whose bright idea this was, but they put them in the same cell, Christine and Erica. So Erica and another inmate on September 29, 2016, to beat the shit out of Christine. She had multiple contusions to her face and arms, a broken finger, broken nose, and a concussion, and she had to go to the infirmary. And Erica made the statement, they should have let me finish that bitch off. So Erica went to trial on this in February of 2019. She was found guilty 
of assault by a confined person. And since she's already doing life, that's just kind of icing on the cake. Now, as far as Lori, um, that's, you know, the mother of the clan, she bought Nico the ammo to use in his killing spree. In 2015, she was sentenced to, she was 48 years old at this time, she was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for providing the ammunition. And she was sentenced to five to six years on two counts of accessory after the fact. That would be, remember when first murder of the, the two guys in the truck and they went to see her at the travel lodge and he's like, Mom, I killed somebody. And she gave Christine a change of clothes. And I don't know what exactly the other count was, but there's there were two counts. And Lori said in court, quote, I'd like to bring my prayers and condolences to all the victims and let the victims know that I had no knowledge of anything, no engagement in, any, in anything. I recognize that's my son, Nico Jenkins, but I won't give my son bullets to kill my worst enemy, end quote. Uh, Lori, you, you did. She is caught dead to rights on film at the stores, at two different stores, buying the ammo. So that is just undisputed. I mean, we know that this is not mother of the year already, but she bought her, just got out of prison, mentally unstable son, bullets. I mean... That's, like, uh, beyond being a, an irresponsible parent. That, that just, go remember back to the theory of differential association and how you learn criminal values in a family. No wonder these kids, with the exception of the two oldest sisters, no wonder these kids all turned into criminals. Um, Nico's uncle, Warren Levering, uh, he was the one involved in the murder of Andrea. Remember, he tried to set the SUV on fire. He went to court, and when he was 54 years old, he was sentenced to 40 years for his role in this. He was found guilty as an accessory to murder and attempted robbery. With good time, you know how they have in Nebraska, he'll be out in 17 and a half years. And he was, I don't think I mentioned this before, but he was caught on a surveillance camera setting fire to her SUV in an alley. And he said in court, quote, never in my wildest memory would I have thought this would happen, let alone be a part of it. Once again, I'm sorry and apologize to the family, end quote. Don't know how uh, sincere he is, but just a tidbit. He has seven kids to six different women. They're like scattered throughout the country. As far as Lori or Lolo, that's the little, littlest sister. She was the one in the car when they shot Curtis Bradford. She supposedly got rid of the gun. The only thing I could find on Lori, who's, by the way, her last name is Sales, S-A-Y-L-E-S, it's not Jenkins, that she was released on bail pending her trial, and this is back in 2015. So I don't know what became of her. So I think that pretty much covers all of them and what happened to them as a result of the crime spree. And as far as psychology goes... Remember what we talked about with the sociology lesson, the um, differential association, and how criminal behavior is learned and transmitted through families. You couldn't ask for a more perfect example of a family to illustrate this in action. Just about every family member, well, not all of them, but many of them, were involved in these crimes and what's comes out at me is the ease at which they all jumped to um, accompany Nico on this this uh, adventure. Sure, 
let's ride around with guns and rob people and shoot people. That sounds like a great time with no um, thoughts to consequences. I think that these are people who are not used to dealing with consequences. And the thing about him that's Nico that's I think makes him the most dangerous is all of the people that he killed, all four of them, absolutely did not need to be killed. If he wanted Andrew's SUV because it was pretty and it was gold, he threw her out of it and he could have just driven away and taken it. And he didn't have to kill her, but he did. The same with the two guys in the truck. If he wanted to rob them, he could have just said, give me your money and left them alive. But he killed them. And I have no other conclusion that he killed them just because he wanted to when it comes down to it. It it was, in my opinion, it was basically a thrill kill, um, just for the fun of it, just to see what it was like to kill somebody. And I think once he did it, he found out that he liked it because, remember, after he went to see his mom, and he was all hyped up. He's like, oh, I just killed two Mexicans. You know? And the same after he killed Curtis Bradford, he went home to a cousin Brian's, and he was all excited. He's like, yeah, we just killed this dude. And I mean, that's his, the kind of thing that brings him pleasure. And the question, of course, is, is he really mentally ill, or is he faking? And it's it's probably about half and half as far as the experts go who have actually examined him. You know, like some say he's schizophrenic, he's psychotic, he's bipolar, yes, he is mentally ill. Other people say he's just a psychopath, and other ones are like, he's just playing making all this up, making up all the symptoms. You know, he's playing everybody. And, of course, I'm not a shrink. I, you know, have no credentials or anything. I, I said that in my disclaimer. And I've never met Nico. So my opinion doesn't mean a whole lot. But personally, I think that he's faking. I think that he likes to call attention to himself. I think he's what you would call an attention whore with the mutilation and the tattoos and the disruptive courtroom behavior. He, like that one high school kid said, he wants to make a spectacle of himself. He wants to be like, look at me. I'm crazy. I'm a circus clown. I want attention. And unfortunately, he's getting attention every time he pulls a stunt, like cutting his face or other body parts, he gets attention. And um, that's basically what I think of him and I'd like to dedicate this episode to Juan Arribe Pena, Jorge Ruiz, Curtis Bradford, and Andrea Kruger and their families and thank you everybody for being here with me for this lesson and Please do me a favor. This is your homework. Um, go to iTunes, Apple Podcast Reviews, and leave me a five-star review because that really helps me in, like, uh, ratings or something. It's, like, somehow important. So please do that. And I will see you back here next week. And next week is my haunted episode. So I'm excited about that, and I hope that you are too. Okay, so goodbye.